robotic production facilities on board the Datanauts Dreadnought Cruiser are really great at making scout drones for identifying rich mineral deposits. Sadly, our pro production numbers are fairly low right now because every single build is done by hand. Blasphemy. We need a way to simply define the end state of our drone creation and then let an orchestration engine handle all the building. Plus, you know, if the design changes, we need to make sure that all the existing drones are retrofitted to take advantage of the new improvements. What can be done? Howdy, I'm Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And with me is my co-host who makes trail mix out of discarded pine cones, Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. And this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. How is that trail mix, Ethan? Is it pretty tasty? Is it crunchy? You know, discarded pine cones are, are you know hard to get through the system, but just so loaded with nutrition, just absolutely worth it. Absolutely. So let's get into today's show. We're going to talk about infrastructure as code as well as Terraform. Today's special guest is Ned Bellavance. Welcome back to the show. For those that maybe missed your Azure Stack show, who are you? What do you do? Hi, I'm uh, Ned Bellavance. I am a director of cloud solutions at a company called AnexNet. I'm also a podcaster and blogger, and I know a little something about Terraform and Azure Stack. Sweet. So let's dive into it. I mean, first, I want to talk more about the infrastructure as code part, because those that have listened to the show for some time may remember that we've had ideas and conversations around infrastructure as code in the past. But here we're going to dive deeper. So let's just start there. What is infrastructure as code in kind of your words, Ned? I mean, it really is what it implies, right? It's being able to define your infrastructure in code or in a text file in some way, as opposed to going and manually configuring each piece of your infrastructure. So in that way, you're able to more clearly define how you want your infrastructure to be deployed, as opposed to the more manual process of infrastructure deployment. uh, Okay, so when I read about infrastructure as code, I read about modeling and how the code is supposed to look and so on. And it feels complicated. So there's got to be a good motivator for why I want to do this. What's the win here? Why do I want to move over to the infrastructure as code way of doing things? Well, I mean, there's a few things that really stand out for me in infrastructure as code. Uh, The first is the fact that your infrastructure to be deployed in a way that is repeatable and consistent. So if you find yourself often deploying multiple versions of an environment, like you have your dev and your QA and your staging and production, you probably want all those environments to be fairly consistent and everything in code, as opposed to manually configuring those different environments. Now you know that if I roll out changes to one and then use the same code for the other environments, at least it's going to be consistent. As opposed to writing a complicated process, giving it to Bob who works the overnight shift and say, hey, would you uh, stand all these boxes up according to this process? And then Bob does what he does in between bites of Cheetos, and maybe it comes out the same, and maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't, yeah. And people are um, fallible. When they need to do things manually, they sometimes skip steps or miss things. So, yeah, being able to have something that which is something that computers excel at, that's good. Another reason is automation, being able to automate the deployment of your infrastructure as you're tasked with doing more with less of your time. Embracing automation is a way to get the job done. And certainly infrastructure as code is one way to approach that. The final thing that I would bring up is that infrastructure as code can be checked into source control and versioned. So what that means is you made a change to your dev environment. And when that change broke a whole bunch of stuff, 
it's fine because it's dev, you're testing it out, but now you're able to roll that change back to a previous version by looking and seeing what changed, especially in a larger environment where multiple people might be touching the infrastructure, being able to trace back which change broke what can be very difficult. So now you have a single source of truth in your source control that tells you these are the things that changed. Interesting. So with the source control and being able to version everything, uh, so here's kind of a sidebar question, Ned. Are you also able to do things like fork that repository where, hey, you know, at that version, this would be a good baseline for us to do this other project and we're going to take it in a different direction? Yeah, I could totally see that. So you might have a, a base build environment that you're using for a bunch of different projects. And then you say, okay, we're starting this new application and I'm going to fork this off from the base build for this other project, which is rolling forward from there. So Ned, I'm trying to wrap my head around that a bit because the idea of providing source control for infrastructure seems a little counterintuitive at first blush. Let's say I've got a switch, and for example, the switch has a few configurations loaded using you know, usually like a, a running and kind of a passive configuration. How do I wrap infrastructure as code around that? You know, like what's the process to kind of introduce the concepts you're talking about to you know, like switch configs and things like that. Right. I mean, when you think about your switch config, it's really mostly a text file. I mean, I'm most familiar with uh, Cisco line of switches. So when I pull a config out, it's just a list of commands for how to properly configure that switch. That is something that could go into source control and you could make changes there and then push that change to the switch config. So I think in that regard, it's pretty straightforward, but it does lead down the path of, is there a this in a more declarative way as opposed to the imperative way that is in a, a Cisco switch config. Okay, so just picking that apart a bit, what we're talking about is potentially you're not working on the configuration in the switch while it's live. You've got a copy somewhere that's in source control and that you and your team are kind of editing or proposing changes to that. And when it gets committed and everyone says, you know, hey, thumbs up, I love it. Then you go over and push the changes or even the full config, you know, depending on the vendor to the switch, and that's how you're treating the infrastructure, in this case being a network switch, as code. Yeah, and it's a little bit harder with traditional infrastructure like a hardware switch. A lot of the infrastructure code stuff is generally applied to virtualized components that have a way of sort of codifying things a little bit better. In other words, it's not just like with a network switch. I mean, that is one way to deal with uh, that bit of infrastructure, the configuration itself. But ideally, you don't want to deal with that specific code. You want to deal with a model that applies what needs to be changed and then have some abstraction layer, some programmatic interface deal with that for you. Yeah, and that sort of gets into the declarative versus imperative. So just to sort of define those two terms, Imperative design is really telling the resource to do something. So if it's a switch, I'm telling you to enable this port and configure it for this VLAN and a few other things. That's an imperative way. Uh, Another way to look at it is uh, PowerShell is generally an imperative language. It's literally verb, noun, go do something or get me something. The declarative way is more... I'm giving you a model of how I want things to be. So I'm declaring how I want things to on your resource. You figure out the way in which you need to configure yourself to match the model I'm handing you. So in the case of a switch, you might just say, I need a port with this VLAN assigned. I'm not going to tell you the commands to actually do that. I'm just going to tell you that's the end state that I want. 
in the world of PowerShell, an analogy would be PowerShell desired state configuration, where you literally map out, I want this service installed on this server and then these files to be resident there. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do all of those things. You have a local configuration engine that does all that. I'm just going to hand you the desired state and let you do the work for me. So declarative is kind of like royalty, the king saying, and I declare it shall be so that we're going to we're going to feed everybody. And then the <laughs> imperative way is, OK, guys, now I just said I, I want to No, you guys need to figure out the specifics of how it's going to happen. Right. And, and to a certain degree, the, the declarative side has to have some sort of contract with an imperative side that's actually going to get that work done. And usually that's through some sort of API or some sort of resource provider that knows how to interpret the model into reality. Yeah, again, that abstraction layer of uh, that, that some human has written to interface between what you declare and then what imperatively must be done. Yeah, and to be honest, it's not always completely smooth. So when you're declaring things... <laughs> he says understatedly. <laughs> so you know your intention, but you do have to understand the underlying infrastructure to a certain degree. So you can't just be like, I need infinite bandwidth for everyone. That's what I declare. Uh, or let them eat cake, data cake. <laughs> well, I'm glad we brought in you know royalty and whatnot to declare things. I'm sure I'll never, I'll never forget that when I think of declarative policies. I want to pivot just slightly towards the idea of using tools, you know, what tools do we want to use. Really, I guess the root of this question is around finding a single tool to do what you're talking about, Ned. Although, it, you know, apparently it's harder, it's, it's easier said than done. To start things off, how do you manage tool drift across multiple tools? And is there one tool that kind of manages infrastructure as code for you? Or is it kind of a cacophony of different things? I don't think of a cacophony, maybe a symphony would be okay. better. All right. <laughs> or hopefully, right? So what I've encountered is that vendors like to talk about a single pane of glass, which you already have. It's called a monitor, right? The idea that there's a single tool that's going to do everything for you is probably unlikely. And if it does do everything, it's probably not going to do everything real well. I might get my Microsoft uh, MVP revoked for this, but uh, SCCM is a good example of a tool that does way too many things and a lot of them not that well. It started out as just a way to deploy applications, but then they're like, oh, we can do configuration management, and we can install Windows updates, and we can do operating system deployment, and oh, we can manage Linux servers, because why not? And uh, at the end of the day, it became this ridiculously complicated beast. What I like about Terraform and tools like it is they do a single thing, they do it really well, and it allows you just to have an assemblage of tools in your toolbox that you can use depending on what circumstances call for a particular one. One of the points of automation is that you end up with a repeatable situation, exactly repeatable, not, and that's different from process, right? So like so many of us have written these complex processes for our organizations that describe you want to stand up a new server. You want to set up a new VLAN on your network. Here are the steps. And then you're expected to follow those steps. When you automate them and you make it code, then it is truly repeatable, not because some human followed the process as best they could and then screwed it up at step 13B, but because the code works the same way every single time. And so I think that's a big benefit that I know it's been said before, but it, it can't be understated because uh, some people just don't want to go down the automation road because it's hard to change, but yet the payoffs are huge, repeatable being one of them. What grabbed your attention, Chris? 
I like the idea of forming a declarative contract with the imperative side. It's an interesting way of kind of thinking about it. And in this case, you know, you declare something to be true. You, you give the example like the royalty, like I declare that this is the way things should be. And then really, it's just there's an abstraction layer or an engine that understands the imperative side of things and knows how to make that declarative state true by way of all those imperative tasks. It also made me think that if you know how to do those imperative tasks, you're probably going to be a lot better at working with the declarative system because you kind of understand what it's going to be doing under the covers. Okay, Ned, so we've got some idea of, of what infrastructure as code is and so on. And now we want to talk about Terraform. Now, for those of you that have listened to Data Knots, we have done a couple of shows on Terraform uh, about this. So show 71, Hashimoto on HashiCorp. We talked about Terraform a bit there. And then it comes up again in uh, show 92. We talked about lab creation using Chef, and Terraform was one of the tools involved there if you were studying for your MCSA. So those links are in the show notes at packetpushers.net. And, uh, and in your podcatcher, if you're scrolling down, you see those links if you want more background information on Terraform. But in case you don't have time, Ned, hey, give us a, a, a quick overview. What is Terraform and what does it do? All right. What's the 30-second elevator pitch, right? Exactly. So what does Terraform do? So Terraform's primary goal is to automate the deployment of infrastructure using declarative syntax. So that's a very short answer. The way that it does that is it leverages a state model. So it looks at the current state of things. It looks at the planned state of things. It uses a graph to figure out what are the changes that I need to make to get it from current state to desired state and then implement those changes. So that's a very simple explanation of what it does. And one clarifier that would help there, you said things. So things like hardware, software, particular modules, things that have to have some kind of a plug-in to work with Terraform, define things for us. Sure. So at its core, uh, Terraform makes use of what it calls providers. And so providers bring with them resources. So to put that in more concrete terms, an example of a provider would be the AWS provider. So the AWS provider has a whole bunch of different types of resources, including EC2 instances, elastic load balancers, S3 storage. It's just got almost all of the resources that exist in AWS. And when you want to instantiate and configure one of those resources, you first have to include that provider. And the provider is actually packaged as a separate plugin from the main Terraform executable. That was uh, not actually always the case. There was a time where Terraform was trying to bundle all of the providers in the main executable. Uh, that became a bit of a nightmare. For that sounds very bloated, yeah. Yeah, they ran into a couple problems. One was every time someone wanted to update the provider, they had to release a new version of the Terraform executable. So they couldn't <laughs> update Terraform and the provider separately. It was all like a package deal. So that's probably less than ideal. <laughs> It sounds like the short answer then, Ned, is that the Terraform is an executable that has plugins. And as long as there's a plugin for the thing you want Terraform to manage, you're good? Exactly. And the providers are, some of them are written by HashiCorp, but a lot of them are written by third parties that want that Terraform integration. So for a long time, the Azure plugin was written by HashiCorp and Microsoft's saw the value there. And now they've taken over the development of a lot of that project and added a ton of new resources to it because they see, 
wow, a lot of people are using this Terraform product. And if we want them to use Azure, we need to make as many resources as we can available through our provider. Well, let's dig deeper into the components that are involved when using Terraform. You know, I know we've mentioned a few, but just kind of what's the laundry list of things that you're going to be working uh, with in order to get Terraform off the ground? Sure. So I already mentioned providers. And providers have resources and they also have data sources. So data sources would be a way to query a provider for information. Uh, A good example would be AWS has availability zones in each region. If you need to know what availability zones you can deploy resources to, you can query that using a data source. Another major component is variables. And so variables are defined at the beginning of the configuration file And then they're used throughout the configuration file for different resources. So you could set up a variable for what region you're deploying in. You can set up a variable for, let's say, a naming convention for all of your resources. So this is dev. I'm going to set the naming convention variable to dev so everything is appended with that name. In addition to resources and variables, you also have outputs. Outputs are what Terraform outputs to you when it's finished a configuration, whether it's successful or not. And that output information could be piped into another tool, or it can actually be piped back into Terraform to inform another configuration. And that's leveraged heavily within modules. So a module is a reusable bit of code that other configurations can leverage to deploy a resource, uh, a set of resources that's very common. So like a good example of that would be in AWS, the VPC, which is their virtual private uh, networking. The VPC has a bunch of common components. So AWS put together a module for that. And you can just reference that module and give it a little bit of information, like how many subnets and what the IP addressing should be. And then it'll output to you the identifier for that VPC and the identifier for those subnets, which then you can use for the rest of your configuration file. So is a module kind of like a template to some degree or a little bit off? Yeah, it is very much like a template, but there's actually a separate thing called templates in Terraform. <laughs> so they couldn't call it a template because it would be, well, it's already confusing, right? A template is what they consider a text file that you can pull in and patch information into. So if you had a really long configuration, think security policies or security egress rules, which can be extremely long. Maybe you want to put that whole thing in a text file and just import that as a template and apply some variables to it to uh, successfully apply it to an EC2 instance or something. Got it. That's all stuff that kind of uh, relates to the config world. You've got variables, which I assume can be passed or potentially statically defined, but obviously good ways to make sure that your environment can be adhering to, you know, whatever parameters you want to supply. The data sources, the providers, the outputs end up being like what you get out of it. But that seems all kind of like config and talking to third-party resources. What about actually taking the declarative state of what you want things to be? And then how is that then executed by a Terraform? What does it, does it take all these things? And is there like a provisioner or like, how does it know what the state should be? And then compares that against, you know, all the resources that it has to make it reality. Right. So the process of actually using Terraform, the first thing you do is do an initialization of your configuration. And that will go and look at what providers you're using and pull down those provider executables It'll do some other, it'll create an initial state file for you. So the state is where it actually stores what the current state of the configuration is. Once you have all that done, the next thing to do is run Terraform plan. 
And Terraform plan is a command that looks at your configuration and figures out what should that look like and compares it to the state file that it generated during the initialization. So that's how it determines what changes need to be made. But it won't actually make any changes yet, which is another really nice thing. You can plan out your changes and then look at them and go, oh, wait, I don't want to add an additional instance or I didn't want to <laughs> manipulate that network. But by default, we're saying here the configuration is all about here's the providers, here's the data sources, here's the variables. And then it goes out to that environment and pulls down the state. I'm assuming by default, there's no config that you're providing. It's just whatever state exists is fine. So if you were to plan against it, there's nothing. It's just saying here it all is. There's no changes to make, right? Right. It starts out with a blank state file. Okay. And you have to have a configuration that's associated with that when you do the initialization. But it's really the only thing in there it looks is where am I putting that state file? Because you can actually store that state file on your local machine or you can store that state file in some remote repository and have a shared state file that multiple people can use for the configuration. It feels like there's a whole workflow to this then. In other words, you don't just show up, install Terraform, and then rock on, start making changes. You got to you got to kind of get it into your environment. Again, there's this planning phase that you've talked about here. Oh, a couple of questions going back to planning. So I can bring sure. Terraform in with my Brownfield environment. Whatever I've got, I can use Terraform. I don't have to start net new, do I? It does have uh, an import feature where you can import existing environments into the uh, the state file so it's aware of them and it can see that, okay, here's your configuration does this existing brownfield environment require any changes to, you know, be in compliance with what you're declaring? The import process is, it can be a little painful because you actually have to write a configuration file that defines your existing environment and then run that. Oh, okay. So it doesn't, it's not like a discovery and here's what you've got and here's all the files that reflect what you've got. You've actually got to write a, write a descriptor that describes what your environment is yourself. Right, exactly. And I believe that the there's an enterprise version of Terraform that does some of the discovery and import for you. But if you're just using the personal version, yeah, you got to write that config file out yourself, okay. which actually might not be a bad thing when you think about it. One of the ways that you discover how little you know about your environment is when you have to declaratively define <laughs> it in a file and you go, oh, I have no idea how those two things work. Oh, that's an interesting point. So Terraform doesn't just like wipe away my requirement to understand my environment. I can't just say, go forth, build me a LAMP server or whatever. You you have to know enough to be able to build the files and describe in detail what it is you're looking for. Then Terraform goes ahead and does what you've said as opposed to uh, – you. in other words, going back to the declarative and imperative, you, you can, you'll end up being declarative, but you've got to understand the imperative first. Right. You have to understand your existing environment, especially if you want to bring it under the management of Terraform. Now, that's not to say you couldn't just leave your brownfield environment the way it is and just deploy new resources using Terraform and just manage those that way. Either option is valid, but I do like the fact that you really need to discover and understand your environment before you can write a config file for it. Well, it's interesting when when we use the word Terraform, what that brings to mind is sci-fi reading that I've done. And if you're terraforming something in that context, you're paving over everything with something new that you're creating. So it does sort of imply to me that, yeah, if you fire up Terraform and you throw some infrastructure at it, what you're doing is kind of starting over to make it whatever it is that you need it to be. Right. Yeah. And 
that's the whole uh, first couple steps is the initialization and we do the plan. And then once we have the plan in place and it says, these are the things that I'm going to do, if you're okay with everything that it's going to do, you run Terraform apply and it goes out and actually makes those changes. That's the paving over. Okay. Right. Yeah. So everything else was just like city planning. We're sitting, you know, with our little, uh, you know, to scale model of the town going, "Hmm, where do I want to put everything? And then the apply is actually roll out the bulldozers and make it happen. Got it. Okay. Okay. So I've applied it. Now I've got this known state. So does Terraform... Uh, once it's done the apply, then do some habitual checking like every half an hour I'm going to go out and see that everything still matches my state. Or is it a tool that you just instantiate manually? You could automate it, but it doesn't have built-in automation for that. So generally speaking, you would could plug Terraform into some other pipeline that you're using uh, that does automatically fire it off to make sure that the environment stays in compliance and you know control configuration drift. If you're trying to control configuration drift more proactively, then there's a whole other set of tools that can do that. The chefs and puppets and PowerShell DSC of the world would be better suited to that particular task. So that goes back to the whole use the best tool for the job sort of thing. Can I use Terraform to kind of wipe the slate clean, start over again? It's not going to nuke your existing environment. It does have a command called destroy, which sounds scary, and it is. If you tell Terraform to destroy, it will delete everything that it finds in the state file for that configuration, which would be great for development, right? You've got a development environment. You spun up just to test out some new features. You're done with it. Terraform destroy. Boom, it's gone. If it was in the cloud, you stop paying for it. Against your production environment, that's pretty scary that you could run one command and boom, it's all gone. You know, I was thinking that pulling in the configuration of an environment can also be a really great tool for figuring out just how clean or probably messy the infrastructure's current state is. And I like the idea is that you're trying to enforce something that's strong, like a strong design, a strong plan, a great idea that's in your head through declarative type configuration. And you're not just trying to pave over a questionable environment with some magical configuration. So you still have to do the homework. You still have to kind of exercise the elbow grease. But the configuration management tool can then just take that from a day two perspective and keep it that clean, well-designed or strong design that you have. What's on your mind, Ethan? Well, Terraform has become so important to operations that whether or not there's a Terraform plugin available for some tool you're evaluating, that could be the the go-no-go. There's no Terraform plugin? And not sure I want to invest in that particular piece of infrastructure, whatever it is that you're looking at. And if that's true, that Terraform is really that popular, well, mm, I mean, I know a lot of you that uh, ping us on Packet Pushers, one of the common career questions is, what skills should I be getting? What's going to future-proof me? What things are hot? What are employers going to look at? Sounds like Terraform is a skill worth having for the resume. And if you're like, well, I... I don't know how to learn it. Can I get a certification? Well, HashiCorp has training. So if you go to HashiCorp.com slash training, they've got classes and stuff. And I believe there's some certificate programs that are out there if that interests you. Well, at this point, I think we have a pretty good grasp on infrastructure as code. And I'm learning a lot about Terraform as well, which is fun and nerdy. Let's go into actual use cases and kind of quote in the wild capturing of of Terraform's use case and stories and whatnot. And the first thing that I wanted to bring up to you, Ned, is the idea of Terraform Enterprise. I guess that's a whole separate thing. Can you kind of spin on that? Why would you use it? What does it do? That sort of jazz. Sure. I mean, so HashiCorp is a for-profit company, and 
they do want to eventually make some money. So Terraform Enterprise is their way to make money off of Terraform. So you Wait, have does that mean like the regular Terraform is crippled or I get extra stuff with the enterprise version? You get extra stuff. So I think there's plenty of people that are just using the vanilla free open source Terraform and that's fine. You can still do a ton of stuff with it. Terraform Enterprise just adds a little bit of a little gravy, mil, a little uh, supersize, extra fries on the side kind of thing. Get some barbecue sauce, little, little, yeah. little Polynesian sauce. Yeah, oh, barbecue sauce. So it, it adds a few things that are lacking. If you're the type of person who enjoys a GUI, Terraform Enterprise has a GUI. Terraform regular does not. You know, it's all command line for the regular one. But if you want a GUI that provides you, so what's the status of your various Terraform deployments? What's the code check-in frequency? What are people doing? Uh, it's got all that. That seems a little backwards, right? Doesn't the enterprise use case feel like they need less hand-holding? Or this is more like dashboards and stuff for the Scrum Master and you know people this that maybe are less technical? If you've got a team all working on Terraform together to deploy environments, having a dashboard and a GUI that somebody can go and look at could actually uh, be pretty useful. Because if you're a small shop, it might just be you. And you don't really, like, who's messing around the environment? Oh, it's me. You know, like, right. no big deal. Yeah, okay, got it. Yeah, so going in the same vein, it also includes role-based access control. So you can give people permissions to various environments and control whether they can just run a plan actually run and apply or run and destroy. So, you know, that production environment, you probably don't want to give anybody but like one person permissions to run the destroy command, right? Depends on how saucy you're feeling that day. But yes, our back, <laughs> our back is good, especially our for auditing. Yeah, yeah. And, and also with auditing. So uh, generally, those are good things. Playing off that auditing thing, it also includes a module that's policy as code. So if you want to be able to define some security policies or um, privacy policies or compliance policies in code. There was originally a separate project to do that within HashiCorp. They took that project and folded it into Terraform Enterprise because they thought this is a good marrying of products and this is something we want people to pay for. So that whole compliance engine runs within Terraform Enterprise. Now, Ned, you've gotten into using Terraform for some of your own projects. I know we wanted to talk about that project a little bit. Now, part of that's got to do with Azure and connecting in to that and using Terraform to make nifty things happen in Azure. Can you give us some uh, insight into that project? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an IT consultant, so I have to go and do work for clients fairly often, as does the rest of my team. And we found that there are some pretty common design patterns that we need to implement in Azure. And we thought, hey, we could use Azure Resource Manager templates, but writing stuff in JSON is awful. So we thought... And you shut your mouth. You shut your dirty <laughs> mouth. JSON's the best. Oh, wait, no. As long no. as you don't like XML, we're good. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, you know, as long as it's not YAML, I'm probably okay with it. But generally speaking, the Terraform uses the HashiCorp configuration language, which is a little more human readable and a little more human writable. More importantly, it's not as... Uh, strict on where semicolons and brackets go. So that part is nice. So we started using Terraform to create these basic configurations that we know we're going to have to deploy when we go do this one type of engagement. And so we have that all ready to go. And since we're using Terraform, we can do it for AWS, we could do it for Azure, you know, whatever the client wants to deploy on. And we go and deploy it and we go and deploy it as part of the project. And then we don't actually use Terraform to manage it ongoing. It's just a good way to get an environment spun up quickly. 
So basically, you're offloading some of your engagement work to Terraform, I, I guess, not only for speed of delivery, but also to make sure every customer gets the same experience. Right. And we can learn from those experiences. So if we've gone and deployed an environment and found, oh, well, I always have to go in and make these one or two tweaks, let's put that back in the configuration file that we use. And so the next time we go to deploy it, we have that lesson learned already baked in. Got it. What about ways that maybe folks that you're working with are using Terraform outside of you kind of bootstrapping them, but different environments they're using Terraform with or use cases that they have where, man, this is the right tool, or maybe they had a bum tool before and you replaced it with Terraform, that kind of jazz. Uh, it's, it's funny you should bring that up. A great example of that is we had one client that was doing all their deployments in AWS. And AWS has a declarative way of deploying things called CloudFormation. And CloudFormation is fine, but again, you're hand-editing JSON, which is not great. And there was some features and functionality that, what's the right word? They're very difficult to implement if you're using CloudFormation. Mm. So we started moving all of their configurations over to use Terraform instead. And then we were able to integrate the Terraform configurations with a CI-CD pipeline that they were using. So I, I believe they're using VSTS for their deployments. So as part of the workflow, one of the build tasks is to run Terraform. And if it's a new build, it'll build out the environment. If it's an existing one, it'll make updates to the infrastructure as needed to be you know, in compliance with whatever the desired state now is. So it's kind of running that plan phase to see, hey, is it new or is it is it need modifications? And then what the apply f- workflow after that to make that reality? Yeah. And right now they have a pause in the build process. So it will send that plan to a group of people. I think on a Slack channel, they can review the output and see if the plan looks good. And if it does, then they can just respond to that with an approve and it will move to the next stage, which is the apply of whatever was in that plan. So it's automated, but it has that manual step in there just for like a sanity check. I really hope that the execution code phrase is like, make it so, just for the inner Trekkie in myself. (laughs) And it's not just like, okay. It's actually interesting to me that CloudFormation is a native tool within Amazon and that in this case, a third-party tool offered more functionality. I guess I shouldn't be too surprised by that, but part of me, the initial reaction was, wow, Kind of surprised. I, I suppose that would be partly because Terraform has to kind of be written for anyone's environment, anyone's tool set, versus CloudFormation, which is specifically written for an Amazon tool set and that kind of that kind of workflow. And as right. you express, you know, there's difficulties involved. Yeah, and um, in addition to the fact that it runs against AWS, it has all those other providers. So in situations where, say, you're spinning up a service and then you want to leverage a third-party tool like. Datadog is a good example for your monitoring. CloudFormation doesn't have a native Datadog resource where you can spin that up, but Terraform does. So I can automate not just the build out of my AWS infrastructure, but automate the implementation of the monitoring as well, all within a single configuration. What about kind of Microsoft stuff, if you will, Ned? I know you work a lot into that, you know, kind of Azure world, especially as an MVP. Can I, I I mean, I assume I can use Terraform, but, you know, kind of what's the secret sauce? What's the, what's going on in the world of Azure when it comes to Terraform? They got a couple interesting things going on. One, I did the whole show on Azure Stack with you guys and the Terraform provider for Azure, 
Uh, they've got a beta build that works works with Azure Stack, which is pretty exciting. I'm hoping that gets into you know public pretty soon. Another what does thing, that mean? I'm configuring my Azure Stack through a Terraform template. It would mean that you would be able to write a Terraform configuration that either applies to Azure or to Azure Stack, and you would just tell it which environment you want it to target. Whoa. Cloudy with a chance of meatballs. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's cool. What else we got? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, The other thing that they have in private preview at the moment is a uh, Microsoft Terraform resource provider for Azure, which doesn't make any sense when you say it out loud, so I probably should unpack it a little bit. Azure uses the Azure Resource Manager to deploy resources. It's in the name. And the way that it does it is it reaches out to various resource providers and says, hey, I need you to go spin this up. So, for instance, if I need blob storage in Azure, I send that to ARM, and ARM then goes and taps the storage provider and says, hey, go create some blob storage for Ned. And I'm like, thank you very much. So what they did is they created a Terraform resource provider for third-party things that aren't natively deployable via an Azure Resource Manager request. And so to get back to the Datadog example, that's one of three things they're supporting out of the box. So uh, Kubernetes is one, Datadog, and Cloudflare. So the idea is in an Azure Resource Manager template, I can build out a bunch of infrastructure in Azure and then make a request to the Terraform resource provider to do further configuration against a Kubernetes cluster or Cloudflare's CDN stuff to distribute content down there or, you know, enable Datadog to start doing monitoring of the infrastructure I just stood up. So it's sort of an inverse of using ARM first to leverage Terraform to create resources. That's the sound of my brain melting there. Okay. All right. You know, I, I think I'd have to put my hands on that. Like I'm starting to, I'm at the edge of understanding, but okay, that's pretty cool. Oh yeah. No, I had to read the article three times and I still was like, um, I don't, it feels kind of like McDonald's driving up to my apartment and asking me what hamburger I want. You know, it feels a little backwards, but all right. I could, there's probably a use case. That service is the real question. I bet yeah. you <laughs> So the the other thing that they now have is in the um, Azure Marketplace, they have a uh, Terraform Marketplace item. And what that actually does is it deploys a VM running Ubuntu that has uh, Terraform pre-installed, the latest version of Terraform, whatever it is. It also has the Azure CLI pre-installed. It creates a storage account and configures it to store its state in that storage account instead of directly on the VM so that's sort of that whole remote state being able to share the configuration with multiple people. And the last thing it does, which is pretty cool, is they now have this thing called managed service identity in Azure. And that allows you to give a VM permissions to take actions in Azure. And so that VM is granted permissions to make configuration changes using its application ID in Azure to spin up new resources so you don't have to necessarily feed it with account information every time you want to run a new config. Wow. And are you interfacing with that using Cloud Shell or just Azure CLI or kind of how do you how do you tickle the bits or, or is it just like remote SSH and you're talking to Terraform like normal? Well, for that one, you use remote SSH. So yeah, you just SSH straight into the box and run standard Terraform commands. Um, there's a whole getting started page if you're interested in knowing more about that. But the Cloud Shell, I'm glad you brought that up. So Azure does have their Cloud Shell. And 
Terraform is one of the many tools that are now pre-installed on the container that runs Cloud Shell. So when you spin up a new Cloud Shell instance, you can just do Terraform dash dash version, and it'll tell you what version of Terraform is running on that Cloud Shell. Awesome, man. I should tell you, I just wrote about Cloud Shell maybe a month or two ago, and, and just every time I use it, I'm just kind of blown away that you can use PowerShell or Bash or really, you know, whatever you want from through a browser. So I'm, I definitely nerd out a little bit on the different ways you can do a CLI with with Azure. It's it's hugely convenient. I'll tell you one uh, example real quick of that. Uh, I have a Chromebook that I sometimes sit and do browsing stuff on. And um, obviously, I can't install any of the Azure tools locally on that thing. But what I can do is just go to the Azure portal, fire up a cloud shell. And if I want to try something out, I've got Terraform on there. I've got Ansible, Docker. I don't even, I forget how many other tools. There's just a whole ton of tools sitting in that cloud shell that I can leverage without having to get up and go over to my actual desktop. Well, there we go. I, my, my brain needs to be terraformed at this point. And uh, I think those listening, you've got a lot of homework. You've got a lot of things you can go explore. I think Ned's given you some uh, some good tips on places to focus your skills and uh, just learn, you know, put your hands on with things. So, Ned, I want to thank you for joining us on another episode of the Data Knots. For those that want to go deeper into what you do around Terraform and whatnot, where are you at on the interwebs? <laughs> well, if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Ned1313. I do have two courses on Pluralsight that are all about Terraform. There's a getting started one and a deep dive. So obviously, I recommend starting with the getting started course. Uh, I have a website that I blog at. It's nedinthecloud.com. So hopefully, that's fairly memorable. And I also have two podcasts because I'm a glutton for punishment. One is a weekly tech news podcast called Buffer Overflow. And the other one is a biweekly podcast where I talk to super smart people like you, Chris, about interesting tech topics. And it's called an Exapod. Well, that's very kind of you and appreciate it. Make sure to go check out those resources. They're pretty snazzy. And that's it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. If you're a social creature, we know that you are. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter or my blog is wallnetwork.com. Or you can follow my delightful friend, Ethan. He's at EC Banks on Twitter, and he's blogging over at packapushers.net. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, go ahead and do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packapushers.net. You'll find the Data Nuts talking about containers, conferences, certifications, configuration management, PowerShell. It's there. Go enjoy. It's all free. Until then, may your server lights blink, your environment be free of drift, and your cables be cleanly managed. Coffee enhanced data knots vocals coming up. Yeah, so it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs>